Since 1970, the United States government has spent over $1.5 trillion on the war on drugs, and addiction rates are pretty much the same. In today's episode of the Live Wire Politics Podcast, we look at the Cobra Effect. Good intentions, bad results. Hello, Livewire Politics Nation. This is our first official episode. And I wanted to start out by, you know, hopefully conveying a message of gratitude and appreciation. This is uh, kind of a long time coming. And for me, you know, just to have a platform where we can share ideas and uh, talk about issues that have a lot of layers in a longer format, it just, there's nothing better available to us right now than podcasting. And for me, I want to try to make these podcasts as free-flowing as possible. I want to have as minimal edits uh, as I can just to keep the information fresh and allow us to have more of a dialogue. Um, So to start out today's episode, we're going to talk about the Cobra Effect. So a couple years ago, I heard a story and it really, really stuck with me. And it was a story about the British government in the 19th century And they had a problem on their hands. They had a rising number of Cobras, and specifically in the city capital. Uh, So what the government decided to do was to create a bounty program. And essentially what that meant is that citizens would be paid uh, for bringing in Cobras. So guess what happened? People started breeding Cobras for extra money. And eventually what happened is the government caught on. And they scrapped the bounty program. And so as a result, the breeders had now worthless cobras and they set them free. And the population grew uh, even more than what they originally planned. And for me, I think that was my introduction to basic economics. And, you know, I look at that story uh, as a matter of intentions versus results. And, you know, I once heard a quote from Milton Friedman who said that one of the great mistakes is to judge policies and programs by their intentions rather than their results. We we got into this thing with the best intentions, really. I never... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about best intentions? (laughs) As a disclaimer, I will interject, insert pop culture references, and some of my favorite movie scenes just to keep things interesting. So to get back to intentions versus incentives, I mean, we can look around us and we all know that the government puts forth policies and programs to drive certain behavior. And, you know, we can think of a few examples right now. I mean, there are tax rebates for electric vehicle purchases, um, sin taxes against, you know, alcohol and cigarette consumption. Uh, There are incentives for schools to perform better. Uh, The individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act. And just as a few examples, um, you know, to regulate our behavior. And some work and some don't. And so the question we're going to pose is, if we put forth an incentive to change behavior, how do we make sure it's not catastrophic if it's a failure? And 
if we go back to the Federalist Papers under James Madison and Federalist Number 10, you know, he writes that state leaders on local levels kindle a flame within their particular states. And what he's referring to is that we have these little laboratories within this republic where we can put forth certain ideas and certain incentives and what works for one state may not work for another. And I would say one of the goals of this podcast is to kind of remove ourselves from the national hysteria. And while the national government plays a very important role in our lives, the more important role is actually on state and local governments. And the idea of federalism being a part of our system of government is something that we already believe in. I mean, case in point, if you asked 10 parents and 10 teachers what their thoughts are about no child left behind or common core, you're probably going to get the same answer. And that is, can't have a national level education platform that doesn't take into account different districts, socioeconomic backgrounds, education levels, income levels, etc. It's best to be managed on the local level. So we want to ask, how does government succeed and how does government fail? Because we need government. But we have to ask ourselves, what can we do to create a free and more prosperous society? So let's listen to a quick clip and let me know if you agree or disagree with this assertion. Principles. And so you, you look at something like the idea of, of equity, which is equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity. On the surface of it, it seems perfectly reasonable to say, well, if every resource isn't distributed absolutely equally to every group, then the system is unfair. And on the face of it, that's a reasonable proposition, but it falls apart under minimal examination. So here's something to think about for, for, all, for everyone who thinks that equality of an out- outcome is a good idea. It's like, why the hell are you striving for anything then? Because the reason anyone strives to better themselves or to develop a skill or, or to move forward in life at all is to pr- produce inequality. You're, you're trying to rise above the, the mediocre masses every time you make an effort at anything. And so everything that we associate um, positive m- movement forward to your positive motivation is actually an attempt to render the world more unequal. Now, you're rendering it unequal in a just way, right? Because we might say, well, if you work really hard, you deserve an unequal outcome. Well, yeah, unless you want people to stop working hard. And that was the old joke in the Soviet Union, you know. They pretend to pay us. We pretend to work. That was Jordan Peterson, who is a clinical psychologist at the University of Toronto. So what do you think about that? Would our ability to seek self-improvement change if the outcome was more equitable? So just to share a personal anecdote, I played one season of Little League growing up when I was 10, and it was the last season because I was not very good. And I remember I made the all-star team but I didn't make it out of merit. They didn't have enough players, so I just happened to make it by default. And there was one game where it would be rare if I could make contact with the ball, and I just so happened you know, to make contact, and the ball just died right at the plate. So I get thrown out, and of course I'm running to first base just trying to you know, save some kind of dignity. So I'm walking back, and I got my head down, not feeling too good about that, 
and I hear a mom in the stand say, wow, was that David? And I remember walking back to the dugout and just feeling so small. I would have wished that someone would have yelled, come on, what are you doing? You need to make better contact or keep your eye on the ball or something to encourage a, a more positive result. And, you know, I know we all, you know, hate the participation trophies and it's load that's talked about. And, you know, but for me, even when I was 10 years old, I knew it intuitively. I knew I didn't want to have um, an equality of results. I, I didn't want to make the all-star team just because they didn't have enough players. And even within that all-star team, we had a 10-year-old that was on the team that was a girl, which was unusual at the time because girls usually played you know, slow-pitch softball and the boys played fast-pitch baseball. And we had a girl on the team. And she ended up batting two or three spots ahead of me in the lineup. And you know, at that point, I realized, okay, we all had equal opportunity, but the outcomes vary depending on our skill set and depending on our ability to, you know, put forth a better effort. All right, so let's talk about when government succeeds. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow the cart, Mr. President. Are you saying there's nothing the government can do to help solve some of the problems that we're even facing today? Well, surely there is. I mean, the idea of a government is not purely abstract. They're human beings that work in positions, just like you and I. And surely their intentions are just as good and noble, right? So one of the first things the government can do is eliminate barriers of entry. So a couple of examples of this is, you know, government succeeds when it allows people to pursue their own goals. And if we look back into the 1960s, you know, the establishment of the Voting Rights Act, reversing Jim Crow, you know, those are all examples of the government creating an even playing field for everyone. But while we're praising the government for rescinding the very laws they created, we should be very cautious because then it comes down to a fundamental rights question. And, you know, that same government that outlawed interracial marriage also rescinded it. So when we talk about an imperfect union, that's what we mean. We, we know that the union continues to evolve and change itself. You know, and, and that's what makes democracy so great. And two questions that we can't possibly cover in this podcast, but it, it should get everyone thinking. If we're talking about the government providing an equal opportunity for all of its citizens, uh, does that also include something like healthcare? Does that include education? Are those two areas a part of that landscape of eliminating those barriers of entry? So they won't guarantee a graduation, but if they gave you the opportunity without being fifty to $100,000 in debt, would you take it? Should government grant access to health care as a right, regardless of one's background? And I got to say, those two topics are probably the most layered and the most emotional and the most complicated. And in order for us to have a genuine dialogue about it, we've got to be respectful because you know, not knowing where someone else is coming from, not knowing their background, you know, we can easily make those two topics specifically 
a battleground of misunderstanding and value association. And, you know, one of the big thoughts behind this podcast was really to create a community of ideas. So just because you might support a single payer system does not necessarily mean that you are a socialist and that you don't agree with the values of this country and you're somehow un-American. And likewise, because you might prefer, um, you know, an open exchange, uh, a free market approach to healthcare does not mean that you don't care about your fellow Americans. And again, the reason I started this podcast is because I'm looking at this country and it's like we're all walking into a restaurant and the host is offering us, you know, a blue menu or a red menu. And we're somehow not allowed to sample the other items, but we're all in the same restaurant where we serve freedom fries and deep fried Oreos. All right, back to the subject matter. So getting back to when government succeeds, we're going to talk about strengthening work incentives. So before we even go through the two examples that we want to reference, I think it's important to know that, you know, while, you know, we look at the earned income tax credit, we look at the 96 Welfare Reform Act, you know, we also should say that just because we see a uh, decrease in welfare caseloads, for example, Uh, does not mean that we are abandoning this idea of making sure that there are certain citizens that need to be taken care of. Uh, There should be some common value between all of us to know that uh, certain groups of people, specifically children, uh, need to have uh, certain programs that help. And, you know, when we reference these two, I think it's just important to to say that ahead of time. Um, But if we were to look at the Earned Income Tax Credit and the 96 Welfare Reform Act, most on both sides of the aisle would agree that they were successful. Um, if we were to look at the welfare caseload in 1996, was 12.3 million people. And if you fast forward to 2010, that dropped to 4.6 million. That is a pretty significant drop. It's over 63%. And the total number of households on welfare declined by nearly 56%. So that said, I think it's important for us to look and make sure that, you know, we're not just dumping uh, recipients out without putting them in a position to be financially stable. So I'm going to read a quote that's verbatim uh, from this particular study, and the study is going to be found in the show notes as well. Um, So from the study, it says that according to the research, both programs raised incomes for working poor and reduced child poverty and adult dependency with a combination of carrots, which come in the form of higher benefits and subsidized work programs, and sticks, which come in the form of time limits and work uh, requirements for recipients. So again, this is another pretty touchy subject. Uh, As long as I think we lead into the welfare discussion with, you know, maybe an acknowledgement that There should always be certain level programs to support certain demographics and folks that can't work um, and have special aid for children. You know, as long as I think we start with that, we all probably agree that nobody wants to be on welfare longer than they need to if they have the ability uh, of social movement, if they're able uh, to move in different socioeconomic classes, uh, then, then we would support that, right? So... 
those are just a few examples of maybe when the government succeeds. Let's talk about a little bit when government fails or when they have maybe a good intention, but the net result uh, is a failure. So we're going to start with the war on drugs. This is what we led into this episode with. And we have another blog entry we're going to do another podcast on as well called The Incarceration Nation. And we're going to get more into the impacts of the war on drugs and what that's done in our criminal justice system. But for right now, we're going to talk about where we're at in 2018, almost 50 years later, when President Nixon launched the war on drugs in 1970. So I was able to find some archived footage from a very well-known professor who's located in, um, in Colorado. And he had this to say about the war on drugs. Now, as I was saying, uh, drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Uh, if you do them, you're bad. Because drugs are bad, okay? It's a bad thing to do drugs, so, so don't be bad by doing drugs, okay? That'd be bad. Wait, that... Professor Mackey, wow, for uh, credit of South Park University. So while that's obviously a joke, it gets at least to the very fundamental core of why we fight the war on drugs, right? This is Drugs are a perceived bad thing, and therefore we need to go after it. Um, now, while that might be well-intended, the results of this war on drugs have not come close to to the intention and the intended results. And, you know, first and foremost, anybody who has personally or through a family member or friend, you know, gone through a situation where drugs have wreaked havoc on their lives, um, they know firsthand how detrimental drug use can be. Um, but, you know, if we look at drugs from a medical problem as opposed to a criminal problem, then, you know, we might have a better net result. So if we just look at marijuana on a federal level, we're not talking about individual states, but still on the federal level, uh, it is still classified as a Schedule One drug, which is the very highest. And, you know, just according to the DEA, and I'm going to read this from their website, uh, that Schedule One drugs, substances, or chemicals are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Some examples of Schedule One drugs are heroin, LSD, marijuana, ecstasy, etc. And there's a few other examples. But I think it's important to know that, you know, this policy is so incredibly outdated and the repercussions of such have pretty much led to uh, where we are now. And, I, and specifically with the incarceration factor, there are more people in jail for marijuana than there are all of violent crimes combined. And this has been the case for quite some time. And, you know, slowly we'll be getting out of that. But I think it's important. It's very strange on the surface to even say that out loud, even in 2018. I'm not going to go into the details of those, uh, those figures because there will be a whole other podcast dealing with that. But I think it's important for us to realize that. And in the beginning of the show, you know, we mentioned the amount of spending that's been done on the war on drugs. $1.5 trillion. Addiction rates haven't changed. Uh, the type of drugs have changed. We have an opioid epidemic like we have never seen. And if we're going to look at this topic, is you know, it does not mean that we have to be advocates uh, for drug use. It means that we are going to promote individual liberty with personal responsibility. 
And this is the same case that we have with alcohol consumption. And most states have at this point legalized marijuana. Um, And I think it's more important for us to see what are the consequences of these policies, right? And just as a small teaser uh, to the Incarceration Nation podcast that we'll be launching soon, um, in 2015, Human Rights Watch did a study. And of the 570,000-plus arrests that happened that year due to drug use, 38% were for marijuana. And of that 38%, 90% of those arrests had no criminal subsequent felony history of any kind, meaning that the majority of that 38% were just for marijuana offenses alone. And I don't want to go into the economics behind what that costs the American taxpayer, but let's just know that it's not cheap. So many conservatives have argued that this is more a utopian issue, right? And Thomas Sowell was quoted as once saying that what would make more sense than the current policy of the war on drugs would be to admit that we are not God, that we cannot live other people's lives or save people who don't want to be saved, and to take the profits out of the drugs by decriminalizing them. Well, that's what we did when we destroyed the bootleggers gang after prohibition was repealed. And we can even draw on the spiritual tradition and look at the writings of Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologia. You know, I remember Thomas explaining in detail about the fact that not all vices need to be punished by law. And, you know, we should have laws that, you know, really forbid one person causing direct physical harm to another. But, you know, ultimately, in Aquinas's point of view, that laws don't make people virtuous, or they may not contribute to them being virtuous. And that's kind of the conundrum we're in, right? Can a government create laws to make a more virtuous people? And if so, to what degree? I don't know the answer to that. And I wonder when we have a societal issue, or we have a personal issue, who do we turn to? for a resolution. Questions I'm sure to ponder for another day, right? So we have one more topic where good intentions don't always yield good results. And that's uh, global food aid. So if I were to tell you that, let's say the United Nations delivered 100,000 pounds of food to developing nations, what would you say to that? It sounds pretty good on the surface, right? But if we peel back some of those layers, food aid to conflict-torn nations or developing nations can lead to problems. So there was a pretty in-depth study by the American Economic Review that also be in the show notes um, that really, they took the time to examine the effect of U.S. food aid in particular on conflict-torn countries. And they found that On average, an increase in U.S. food aid also increased the incidence of duration of civil conflict. And this is largely due to the fact that when we deliver food, and I say we as in the United States, but any country that's developed, when they're delivering food to a war-torn nation, a nation in conflict, or even, in certain cases, developing nations... Food and hunger are always used as a primary weapon of war for totalitarian dictatorships across the board. 
and we've seen it all throughout the 20th century. And so when we look at food aid, you know, it has to be more of a comprehensive overview because, you know, if we want to really be effective in our foreign policy, and, and I would argue that food aid and um, partnerships with developing nations and conflict nations is part of our foreign policy. You know, we need to look at it from a much different perspective. And, you know, food aid on just pure delivery statistics just ain't going to cut it. And that marks the end of the very first episode of the Livewire Politics podcast. And this podcast was brought to you by no one because we're not sponsored. So that said, thank you. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do so or drop me a line at livewirepolitics.org. Let me know what content you want to see, what topics you wanted to cover. I don't know what I'm doing yet which makes it pretty exciting because it's just as much your podcast as it is mine. So, till the next episode with Live War Politics Nation, my name's David Stanky.